This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. I kind of hate the word, but I don't know. I'll admit it. I'm a foodie. I'm a foodie to the core. Whether it's in the kitchen, trying out a new recipe, or checking out the latest trendy restaurant— And I can earn rewards every time I braise a lamb shank or devour a chef's special at my favorite eatery with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. This makes my compulsive to-go ordering at Kismet Rotisserie in Studio City feel so good on so many levels because with all the points on my purchase, it's a win-win, right? Plus, you get delicious chicken. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery. Plus, earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries. Go to usbank.com slash altitude go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Eat out or eat in with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash altitude go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. Hi, it's Jesse. Today on the show, the thoughtful culinary superstar Marcus Samuelson will talk about his incredible life story, how 9-11 and the pandemic impacted his New York experience, and how sometimes you might need space from a sibling. I said, I need to break up with you. I need a year off. You're going to want to stick around for this. I'm in the kitchen at the NoHo Thai restaurant Fish Cheeks. And something important about the kitchen here is its burners. I'm not good at calibrating BTUs, but let's just say the stove is operating at a level I have never seen before. The wok is hot. You hear that sizzle? That's because for some dishes, like the stir-fry watercress, for example, the vegetable only needs to be in the wok for a matter of seconds before it's ready to serve. Fish Cheeks is known for its delicious coconut crab curry, and also its long waits, but it's worth it. Like the name suggests, their specialty is seafood. The flavor is very authentic. They don't dumb down the spice at all. If the dish calls for spice, it is spicy, which means Jesse is sweating. This is Dinners on Me, and I'm your host, Jesse Tyler Ferguson. I was shocked and honored to find that today's guest was a newcomer to Fish Cheeks, one of my favorite spots in the city. Given his encyclopedic knowledge for food and his decades in New York City, it's hard to imagine I could introduce him to something new, but here I am, introducing Marcus Samuelson to something new. So without further ado, from the Food Network's Chopped, ABC's The Taste, and the head chef of Harlem's Red Rooster, Marcus Samuelson. I feel like you were at the James Beard Awards one year when I hosted, right? Yes. Because I know you won that year. Yeah. Uh, one of your like eight, nine yes. James yes, Beard yes. Awards. <laughs> yes. and, um, I think I probably said on stage that the community that you belong to is one that I admire so much and I revere so much. And I really just, when I was hosting, I, that was my second time doing it. I just, I really wanted to get it right for you all because it, yeah. it was a night celebrating you. But I feel like you're part of us because you really engaged and mm-hmm. that works we as chefs and people, we always <laughs> love like the engaged person, right? Yeah. And also coming from theater, you put up a show, 
you do your art, you do your thing, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You know? It's exactly like being a chef, though. Yeah. I feel like that is like a commonality that I find yeah. between our two professions. It is performance. Yeah, and you can do your, like in cooking, you can do your best work and no one sees it. Mm-hmm. And then you can do not so great work and it takes off. Yeah, so I, I've done some work with the UNHCR, which is the UN... Um, a refugee department. They're, you know, advocating for asylum and refugees and they're making sure everyone who wants to find refuge has an opportunity to do so. And uh, Justin and I went to the border of Venezuela and Colombia wow. a few years ago with our friend Jen Abraham, who is the head of the UNHCR. And we basically were there witnessing and seeing people who come in from Venezuela over the bridge sometimes stopping at the local Red Cross to pick up provisions. Some of them were going to neighboring towns to find work for the day, but others were traveling 350 miles or so to to Bogota, where they could find work and opportunity, Mm -hmm. sometimes shelter, medicine. Um, And I only bring this up because it it reminds me a lot of how your early life started Mm -hmm. with your mom. Um, Can you tell a little bit about that story? Just as a point of like reference in history? Yeah, well, so I was born in Ethiopia, and I was born in a hut that I go back to that hut. In pre-pandemic, my family and I went back every year. Most people, the things that you take for granted, uh, I, I've never seen, I don't remember the eyes of my mother, for mm-hmm. example. And the defining time in Ethiopia, so much of it is a blur to me because it happened before I was age of three. But... My sister and I, we have tuberculosis. My mom had tuberculosis. She passed away. We survived. And sometimes you need to be very lucky, but also have random strangers just look out for you. And both of those things happened to me. We were extremely lucky that we survived. But we're in a hospital. We're now healthy. What's going to happen to these two kids? Mm -hmm. And uh, the nurse at the hospital, she just took us in. Mm -hmm. She actually broke the law. Uh, but she knew that it was better for us to go home with her than just put us back out on the street. Mm-hmm. And she then eventually set us up for adoption. And that's how I went from Kasahun Sigai to Marcus Samuelson. I also went from the warmest country in the world to the coldest country yeah. in the world, basically. Sweden, yeah. 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 But I also got to, into a family that truly loved me and, and, mm-hmm. and we were, you know, a normal family uh, in, our, in our community. We just looked different. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. We just mm-hmm. looked very different than our other Swedish, the Anderson across the street or the Johnson, yeah. you know, on the next to us. But we loved the same. We yeah. were loved the same. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned the story of um, these people walking so far to find refuge because your mom carried you on her back to, to, yeah. to get help um, to, to get help at a hospital for 75 miles or, or yeah. more I'm a, I'm a new dad now I, how old are your kids thank you uh, the small one are uh, almost seven he says he's seven so he's like <laughs> okay he's almost seven so that's what okay. I'm proud of. and 16 months so yeah. oh wow so okay, Grace yeah. is 16 months Zion is almost seven. Yeah. And uh, it, we have so much fun. How old is yours? Uh, I have a, he'll be six months and then almost three years. Beautiful. Good, how are you? you? Welcome to Fish Cheeks. Thank you. I'm Jennifer. Yes, I'm I know. I'm your server today. <laughs> we are a Thai restaurant with a focus on seafood. So mm-hmm. I think there's a, there's a couple of things that I would totally recommend. The shrimp yes. and three crop sauce, the corn salad is 
delicious. It's mm-hmm. very, very good. Coconut crab curry. That's our fan favorite. The steamed fish with Thai herbs and the crab uh, crab fried rice. Great. How do I know? Do you want to order for us? Yeah, I mean, like, I'll, what you said. That's okay. what we're yeah, let's do it. Let's no do that. Problem. Exactly. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Um, I know that you don't remember your mom because you were so you were two when this happened. Mm-hmm. How was that story recounted to you? How did you learn about it? How old was your sister at the time? I laugh when you say that because you have to kind of as much as you can bring you back to the 70s in Ethiopia, yeah. right? And then not only Ethiopia, you're on the countryside. Mm-hmm. So there's no birth certificates. Yes. So just a simple thing as a birthday, which like every person would know, I don't know my birthday. Yeah. You don't know your birthday. I don't. And what uh, do you celebrate? How did you choose to celebrate? Like, uh, my, you know, my father in Sweden, he was so pragmatic. When he picked us up, uh-huh. <laughs> he's like, okay, two things. The kids' names and the kids' births, that should be done by before we get home. <laughs> wow. Right? He's like, what day is it today? May 6th? That's the old one's birthday. No. All right, the, the young one in the back, six months later. <laughs> oh, my God. November 6th. Click, next. That's amazing. Names. All right, it should be names during the nationals. Because we don't know if these kids are going to stay in Sweden. Linda and Marcus. Next. Wow. Book. That's my dad in a nutshell. Pragmatic. <laughs> Pragmatic <to a> list. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, so, uh, but anyway, we were so underfed, so they had to look at teeth and weigh us. And then that was underdeveloped. Mm. So it was very, very hard to kind of um, set a date. But I think I was around uh, two and a half. Uh-huh. That's what they said. My sister was between six and five, okay. you know, so she has real memories. She has memories, yeah. yeah. So she's the one that really told yeah. me. Wow. And still to this day, she can always bring you up things that, this pot used to look like this, this pan was this, the smell of, of the stews is like this. These are very vivid memories, but they're v- once we're in Ethiopia, she can also point out things that I'm totally confused about. She's like, oh no, no, mm. that was from back home. Wow. I really love that my, Sister Linda drives because emotionally, uh, and also for the connectivity of my kids, like we Ethiopia is a big part of us. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, if you and I would walk down the street and we wouldn't speak speak English, no one would come up and say, "Oh, that's the Swedish guy going." Or no. maybe they would to you, but not to yeah, me. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So there's clearly my identity. You're pretty is, famous. I don't know. People might know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, but so so it's a part of it, and I, I and through my work. I learned to not shy away from it. It mm-hmm. took a long time. Just sure. Uh, and that's obviously at Aquavit, there was really no space for it, mm-hmm. right? And so much of my European training, mm-hmm. there was no space for it. And this is not like music where you can write your own tunes. But once I realized it is like music, mm-hmm. I can write my own food. Right. Uh, because when I was coming up, it was only Eurocentric food, right. right? And I was like, well, wait a minute. You can actually be part of changing that. And that for me was so important. And that's what I was clear for me. I have to move. I have to move to Harlem. Yeah. I have to start something that is very different than my platform of modern black and being not hiding away from that in any shape, shape sense, or form. Right. really put it front and center in my food started with that. Yeah. Because there was no space to do it before. Right. I, I, I think a lot about 
when I was looking at your, just like researching you, I was thinking a lot about kind of like the magnetism of Homeland because like a tide basically kept taking you farther away from Ethiopia. You know, you were Sweden, then a little farther, Harlem. And, but yet still like in these places, specifically Harlem, there was still like a magnetism there. I mean, is it Maya, mm -hmm. your wife? Mm -hmm. Maya um, is from Ethiopia. Yeah. But you met her in Harlem. Yeah. You came together in Harlem. You spent part of your life in Sweden. She spent a lot of her life in Holland. Yeah. She lived in Ethiopia longer. But the fact that you guys came together mm -hmm. in Harlem is fascinating to me, and we're going to touch on that. But Fascinating to me, too. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it is. But then also, like a tide, there is that magnetism that pulls you back. And like I yeah. feel like if you were pulled back to Ethiopia, specifically looking for your, your birth father, and, and also your, your half-siblings. I, I don't know if you knew that they existed or not, if that was a surprise. Not. I didn't. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? First, meeting Maya, I want to know how you met and, and how that all happened, because that's just like, I can't believe yeah. that you guys came together. And then also going back and meeting this family that you didn't know you had? Well, I think when I came to States, being an immigrant, I came with my savings of $300. I knew that I could add value in a kitchen. And I just basically put the gas, I just ran in this gear five or six, mm -hmm. if you're driving stick, right? Mm -hmm. Like as any Euro trash as we do. <laughs> Boom. And I just burnt, I just went. And once 9-11 happened, it was, I cooked in the tower a week before that. Mm -hmm. I knew so many people, young, beautiful New Yorkers mm -hmm. with just hope. Of just, they were just cooks, mm -hmm. like, like, mm -hmm. made it, had a good job at Windows of the World. And my dear friend, Chef Michael Monaco, he went, he survived because he went to the eye doctor that morning, mm -hmm. right? Like the most randomest mm -hmm. act, right? And it really, it shook all of us. And I started to doubt, what am I doing? What am I doing here? And once doubt comes in, when you only go in gear six, it's almost like you're an Olympian. You can't, you can't have doubt when you're going to be a chef at the highest level. And on top of that, you're a black chef. I can't, there's no space for doubt. Yeah. So, but doubt came in and I couldn't take that away. So I knew something had to change. I was down, probably the closest thing to depression in a way, right? So I talked a lot to my mother. She's like, I know you can't leave America. Like that's giving up, you can't do it. I said, okay, but I have something have to happen. So I moved from uh, basically where the time wanted to send the Midtown West mm -hmm. to Harlem. And discovering Harlem was like... What year is this, 2001, 2002? Uh, 2002, I bought an mm -hmm. apartment and uh, the apartment was ready around 2003. But even going up there and deciding, I was in Harlem a lot, I was walking on these beautiful boulevard. Also being black, like feeling, uh, oh, I belong here. Yeah. I have a history here. Uh, I don't understand everything here, but I want to learn about it. I've read so much about... James Baldwin to Maya Angelou, or, or I've seen the Apollo, I've been to the yes. Apollo. I felt connectivities, right? So there was yeah. stuff there, right? So uh, she said, just, just move to Harlem. Sure. You're happy there? And she also said to me, Marcus, what is it about bankers? Why are you only cooking for bankers? My mom said, like, you knew people that worked in the post office and are teachers. Why is bankers' palate 
better than the post office work at Talat. And I couldn't answer that question. Uh-huh. And she's like, you should cook for regular folks. Just cook for regular folks. And that's kind of like, well, in Harlem, there's a lot of beautiful, regular, middle class, working class people. And I just knew right away, like, I, I'm moving to Harlem. Eventually, I will open a restaurant here. But also, I need to, like, get myself out of the situation at Aquavit. So it was a long journey there, mm-hmm. right? And just to back up a little bit, Aquavit is a restaurant that you, you worked at. <laughs> that was your first kind of big break. Yes, of course. And huge. you were the uh, chef de cuisine. Is that what you yeah, call exec- it? Well, executive, executive chef. chef. Like the, is that downgrade. the fancier term? No, I love how you downgraded me. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that. But, um, and you also received a, th- a three-star review from the New York Times, yes. which is unheard of yeah. for anyone that age. And then on top of that, being a black chef. Yeah. So I just want as point of contact. You can continue now. <laughs> yeah. I just paused your story. Right? Yeah, no, yeah. but you're right. But, uh, oh, wait, here's some uh, food. Oh, my God. No, stop. There's the corn salad, Beautiful. the plate on the papaya salad, lobster paws, poached lobster mm. with coconut chili dressing. And this Can is our shrimp and three crab sauce, it. lightly cured raw shrimp with our wow. Nam Jim seafood. Enjoy, guys. I, oh this goodness. is beautiful. Okay. I love how unapologetic, like the raw garlic is there. Yeah. Deal with it. It's yeah, not her it problem, is. it's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care where you're going, we're gonna have raw garlic here. <laughs> I love Gorgeous. it. Gorgeous. Beautiful. Stunning. Okay, let's take a quick break, but don't go away. Marcus shares more of his incredible story of connecting with his birth family in Ethiopia. Okay, be right back. I love what I do. I also love the idea of not doing it one day, but it's getting harder to know the best way to move forward into the future towards retirement. We hear about inflation, rate hikes, the changing market, got to get the kids through college, build an emergency fund, and then there's retirement. Here's where Fidelity comes in. Fidelity can help you find clarity in saving for the future, even as your path and priorities evolve. How? Well, they'll help you create a free personalized plan that adapts as your priorities change. They'll also show you what's called timely insights, small tips on ways to save and invest to help meet your goals. And you can monitor your plan so you stay on target. The future's coming and so is retirement. Fidelity can help you take it on your way. Learn more at fidelity.com future. Expenses charged by your investments and other costs and fees associated with trading or transacting in your account apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services member NYSE SIPC. I love my home. I do. I love it so much. But I also love vacationing. I work a lot. And sometimes it it bothers me to think how often I'm not actually there to enjoy it. I mean, whether I'm going on a fun vacation with Justin or traveling to New York for work, there's big chunks of time that I don't get to relish that sofa I pined so hard to buy or bake cookies that I can make with my stand-up mixer that I got for Christmas. And I realize there is a way that I might feel better. If I became an Airbnb host, I could make use of the space when I'm away and make some extra cash. I mean, my next vacation could essentially pay for itself. Like, my extra Airbnb cash could go into an account for that trip to Paris I've been pondering, and then basically the trip is free. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, I know that's not technically how math works, but okay. Also, if we're saving money hosting, this means I could do some shopping, right? And the weather is also very nice in Paris at this time of the month, and I just feel... Like it might be, okay, you know what? I'm going to talk to Justin about this. Um, Thank you for letting me share this epiphany with you. I appreciate it. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And we're back with more Dinners on Me. Marcus was just telling me about moving to the United States with $300 in his pocket and his decision to expand his cooking audience beyond bankers. So getting out of Aquavit, you had to... But in that process, it was a lot that happened. My sister said... You need to be happier. It's horrible. And that's kind of, for me, when I started to go back to Ethiopia. And I met my birth father. And I say all this because it wasn't just cooking anymore. Like, my family really saw that I need to live my life. Going back to Ethiopia was one of those things. So I, it opened up a whole door of love and, you know, meeting my, my father. And once my apartment was ready in New York, I had a housewarming. And at the housewarming to my apartment, that's where I met my wife. At the housewarming for your own house, your own apartment? Yeah, my friends. Like, you know, like I was the only one of my buddies that had like a real apartment. Was she squatting there when you moved in? No, my (laughs) friends were. I got a nice apartment. Uh, It was two floors, big patio. Mm -hmm. And so it was always like five people, four people. You know, like people stayed there all the time. These musicians came to stay with me. So they were like, all right, let's throw a party. We're leaving New York now, and yeah. you just bought your apartment. So it's like, there's like 200 people in my house. So many people that I had to, I had to leave. I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm working tomorrow. <laughs> I got to go. So I left. And in the elevator down, I meet Maya. And she's like, there's a party here in this building. <laughs> Do you know where the party is? I'm like, wait a minute. Maybe I should not leave. <laughs> and that's how I met my wife. So did you stay? Yeah, I assume you stayed. Yeah. I just stayed. You went back up to your own party. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And then how much did you learn about Maya on that first night? Did you learn that she was from the same country? Did you learn that her history with Holland? And mm-hmm. were you Not just, all of it. We, I learned a lot. But then I said the next day when they left, I said, there's this great diner here in Harlem called M&G. It's not there anymore. that I love. And... It was one of these magical Harlem diners. Harlem used to have tons of great diners. The jukebox is great. And if you don't know the menu, what are you doing? Where do right. you, there's, always, there's always my time, what are you doing? <laughs> so, you know, like the service is great, but I couldn't say it's, it's not kind service. Right, okay, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, if she can sit through this if she process, can get through that. Okay, yeah, yeah. That she's was a gotta test. be cool. That was a test. So we went like for lunch, whatever, this diner, but she put in, you know, music in the jukebox and, and she could hang and I was like yeah. oh my god this could, this could be cool yeah but you know so we met for that how long before you guys married oh it took a minute five five years I wanted yeah that's a good that's a mm-hmm. good courtship yeah we don't stayed. feel like you're rushing into we, it I think we live, started to live together about a year later or something yeah. like that. Um, talk to me about what it was like to meet your half siblings that has got to be a better word than half-siblings. Yes. We haven't found it yet, yeah. but... I mean, I'm sure they feel like whole siblings. Absolutely. I, just I mean, step-siblings like, step sound wrong. Yeah. No, we got to come up with a better word. Okay, by the end of this podcast, we're going to come up with a better word yeah. than half-siblings. Because when you meet young kids that you connected to, mm-hmm. there's nothing half about that hug. Sure. There's sure. nothing half about that love. And finding my father, landing in Addis, knowing, like, yes, you're going to meet your dad, that you... Never met. Like there, like yeah. if your juices are, not, if you're not flowing yeah. now, it's never going to happen, right? Right. 
We drive out on this dirt road, that red clay that Africa has. And then the roads get smaller and smaller. And then out in the savannah, to the right, the driver says, okay, the village is there. So in about two minutes, you're going to meet your dad. Oh my God. And now I go, now I'm like my heart beating. And once we got to the village, you know, first of all, it's a car in a village that still plows with like the way we did in the 1500s here. So just the fact that a car is coming, Mm -hmm. every kid comes over. And then I see him, like I know right away. There's like a guy with like long gray hair. And you know, the vanity in me is like, oh, I'm gonna keep my hair. I'm gonna, (laughs) he has a stick. (laughs) And he has this long silver hair. And I'm like, oh, that's him. You could tell. Mm. And we meet and I hug him and have a translator with me. And he's like, what took you so long? Wow. And then... Was the last time he saw you when your mom took you when you were two years old to go find a hospital? What I learned then that I didn't know, I came in hot the way you're asking a Western style of question. Yes. Which is, here's my question, give me an answer that makes sense. Yeah. Being there, you get basically a Buddhist answer. If I asked, what happened? He's like, it worked out for you and your sister. Oh. <laughs> and if I asked, why didn't you come and get us? You're like, you get like a 30 year answer, not an answer of the issue, right? right? So, and also when you wait a little bit, how do we know that he didn't come and get us? Right. He also had to walk in, he didn't have bus, he didn't have car. There's right. all these other right. things. Right. Like we think like, right. we want a narrow answer yeah. and it really helped me to understand the world from a completely different way. Well, culturally, it's just like a whole other way of thinking and, and it's being projected upon you in an incredibly impactful moment. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine what that must have been like. Beautiful. And then seeing the hut, this hut that I was born in. Yeah. It's the size of a four top in my restaurant. Wow. And that doesn't humble you. And then I saw eight more kids. The youngest four, and the oldest maybe 18. It was one of the strongest moments in my life. You know, of course, your kid's being born, but like mm-hmm. getting married. But if you take that aside, that's probably the strongest moment in my life. Yeah. Just raw emotions, you know? Also, I can only imagine what it must feel like to encounter not only your father, but then eight more people who are a part of you, truly. I mean, that's had to have been overwhelming. Absolutely, but after an hour or two, and then reality strikes in. Yeah. And I had to negotiate with my father that I just met. There was four girls, and the oldest girl had to leave second grade because she had to come home and work. And I'm like, no, let her go to school. And he was like, well, if you find a replacement for her, these are the services needed. Mm-hmm. So it's, the women were expected to, after a few years of school, then stop education, be a service to the family. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, you sponsored your sisters to move to a city so that they could continue education. And so in your father, I can imagine was, like you said, well, then how are you going to make up for my Mm -hmm. loss? Mm -hmm. That's why when you poke that bear, whatever you think it's gonna, the answer's gonna be, 
It's not that. Mm-hmm. So I, I learned a lot, and I, g- I gained a lot, and we had to work a lot, but we gained a lot too. Sure. Well, we gained I mean, love. You know, I mean, all relationships with family are always evolving, and they're always they're malleable, they're 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 tenuous. They need to be sometimes handled with kid gloves, um, and I think that's for everyone. I mean, that it's an evolution. Thank you. <laughs> I broke up with my sister for a year. I needed. Wow. I said I need to break up with you. I need a year off, wow. and then basically around the ten, eleventh month. I started to miss her. Yeah. And I was like, okay. And she's like, good. I'm ready to start seeing you again. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, where does your sister live? Uh, both my sister lives in, in Gothenburg, in Sweden. We're back together, though. That was a long time I'm ago. Glad. Yeah. I'm glad. I understand that, though. I totally yeah. get that. You, uh, at a very young age, from what I understand, knew that you wanted to, to do this, mm-hmm. wanted to be a chef. Yeah. Um, that's, this is something we have in common. I knew from a very early age that I wanted to be an actor, mostly on, on stage. You know, all the other mm-hmm. stuff sort of became as a surprise to me, um, being on TV and, and, and film. But there was this incredible drive. I wanted to be in New York. I knew I wanted to go to acting school. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what I was passionate about. But I also feel with that, and I want to hear your um, thoughts on this, Knowing what you want to do at such an early age and having that drive, I think there's a burden that comes with it because there's this great, at least for me, there was this um, pressure to then do it and be good at it because maybe you are more well-rounded than I am, but I was kind of thinking, if I can't succeed at this, I don't know really what the next thing will be. How How was it for you knowing at such an early age that you wanted to be a chef and you wanted to create? And I know you had early success in, in France at age 16, you know, working mm-hmm. with a very great chef who didn't necessarily encourage you, but, you know, gave you opportunity. One of the blessings that blackness has given me, it gave me clarity, clarity of choices. It gave me a focus. When, you know, I left my house early and when we lived abroad, of course, we're teenagers, we work in these great restaurants and hotels, Mm -hmm. but we do what teenagers does, right? And you get in trouble. I always knew I can't get in the same amount of trouble as my roommate. So I had to like, leave, which was not necessarily a bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm like, all right, this is where I have to go back, get out of the car, and this is, you know, mm-hmm. and I hear about it tomorrow, peace, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's not a big loss, it's just the clarity. I was also a foreigner in a different country, but I just knew that there's no privilege of walking in tomorrow and said, we did X, or we did Y. I know my butt. <laughs> would be out of there. Mm-hmm. So that gave me a focus and a clarity. My mom was very, she always gave us confidence. Not arrogance, but confidence. And I think we, that was our mechanism of surviving in that town. You know, like just going to the grocery store, mom had to prep mm-hmm. because everyone wanted to touch my sister's hair. Everyone wanted to like take a picture. Oh, really? And this is way before iPhone, so like it wasn't like yeah, a yeah, 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 It was yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> and like in, in the beginning, it's kind of, oh, cute, funny. But then after like the 30s time, so like, and maybe my mom's hair wasn't ready or whatever. We mm-hmm. would just go, she was going for milk and eggs, right? Mm-hmm. So I know that I'm thinking my awareness of how I dress comes from that time. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of, Wearing a hat, we wore a hat because then they couldn't touch our hair. It was yeah. a lot of stuff still to this day. Right. I do. But it's also our tightness came from that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Our, our togetherness. Well, it is interesting that you ended up in like what I think considered to be one of the greatest melting pots, well, certainly in America, but in the world. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, it's beautiful. Crazy. That this, this fish. I mean, this is our I know it is. 
I mean, would you say... Take, take, a photo, take a photo of that fish again. The steamed fish with Thai herbs today is Branzino. It's already deboned. Um, there might be a little bit of pin bones in there. Would you okay. say this is from uh, Chiang Mai? Or is no, it from this is more central, Sa- central? central Thailand. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm. This one is coconut crab curry. This is super spicy, right? Yeah, yes, I remember this. I'm going to sweat. Please don't laugh at me. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you. This fish is amazing. Now for a quick break, but don't go away. When we come back, I'll talk to Marcus about his amazing work with Chef Jose Andreas and the black chefs we should be talking about right now. Okay, be right back. Sometimes when I've had a long day, honestly, the last thing I want to do is think about what to eat, even though I I love to cook. I mean, sometimes, let's just face it, we don't want to spend the time figuring out the ingredients, the recipe, going to the grocery store, and then you got to face the cleanup. That's when Factor comes in. I just pop one of their delicious meals in the microwave for two minutes, and voila, I have a restaurant-quality meal. I personally like to plate it and make it look pretty, and I tell myself, wow, look at this beautiful pork shop you just threw together. I love that Factor is flexible with my lifestyle. I can cater it to my dietary needs. Like, let's say I'm leaning vegetarian one month or keto the next, and I can change how many meals I get week to week to fit my schedule. I seriously look forward to the Tuesday delivery date in that Factor box on my doorstep. So why not give it a try? Head to factormeals.com slash dinners50 and use code dinners50 to get 50% off. That's code dinners50 at factormeals.com slash dinners50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. I kind of hate the word, but I don't know. I'll admit it. I'm a foodie. I'm a foodie to the core. Whether it's in the kitchen, trying out a new recipe, or checking out the latest trendy restaurant— And I can earn rewards every time I braise a lamb shank or devour a chef's special at my favorite eatery with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. This makes my compulsive to-go ordering at Kismet Rotisserie in Studio City feel so good on so many levels because with all the points on my purchase, it's a win-win, right? Plus, you get delicious chicken. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery. Plus, earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries. Go to usbank.com slash altitude go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Eat out or eat in with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. And we're back with more Dinners on Me. You touched on it just a bit, and I, you know, I, I hate talking about the pandemic because we're like, oh. But I think for the restaurants, it's, you, we all came out of that experience much different people. Yes. Not only reassessing. Thank you for making it so unapologetically good and sharp and spicy. Oh, the fish? <laughs> Everything. Just do it the way yeah. you want to do it. It's Thai food. <laughs> it was amazing. Sorry. Yes. 
I'm back, Jesse. I just no, like, you, I know, when I, know. I have good food in front of me, no, it's really go, hard for go me to there. focus. I understand. I'm, I'm, in, I'm with the food. I'm with you too. I know, I But I'm it. here. Isn't this delicious? <laughs> it's so delicious. But did you have this last time you were here? No. Oh my no, gosh. I haven't been. I haven't been of oh, course. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Oh, so I'm taking you somewhere I've new. I've never been to this oh, restaurant. I love that. But t- talk about coming out of the pandemic and like kind of how that shifted you and your beliefs. Thank you for asking me that question. And I feel like I went through all the emotions. First, I was scared. I lost a friend, mm-hmm. a dear a chef, Floyd Cardos, really mm-hmm. early. Mm-hmm. And then there was other people not known to outsiders, but like really important people in kitchens mm-hmm. that we lost. Then what's going to happen with our business? How do we shut down in a way that impacts, you know, all the people? Right. And then I got angry. And my wife's like, you have to stop. You can't walk around like this angry ball at home. Mm-hmm. You have a kid here, like this is not healthy. And that was kind of like the moment for me, but I'm like, okay, what do I do? I called my friend Jose, Jose Andres. Yes. And World Center Kitchen, his organization, he said, Marcus, we can serve. We can serve healthy. We, can, we know how to serve safe. Um, if you open Rooster Up as a community kitchen, can you get people there? I was like, yes, the need is, is here. Yeah. So we started our community kitchen together with World Center Kitchen out of Rooster. We served 200 people a day, 300 people a day, 800 people a day. Yeah. Then people started to drive to our stuff. And guess what, Jesse? Customers are customers. When we serve in that line, people are like, I like the chicken better yesterday. How come you're giving us apples for dessert? Last time we got actually an apple pie. Like same dialogue, right? That right. you would have with our regulars, right? Yeah. And as a chef, all you wanted was feedback. Yeah. So I needed that. I needed that. And coming out of that, you know, 300,000 meals later, if I ever started to miss the regular where is everybody? Where's the band? How can we get the band yeah, back together? Yeah, yeah. And a year later, it's like, all right, we're going to be all right. As a privileged person, we're going to be fine. Okay, but who's not okay? No. And then slowly started also to dream. If I get a shot to do this again, I would do the restaurant this way. And I was kind of down in the basement like, here's my Swedish side. Here's my New Yorker side. Here's my Ethiopian side. And once I st- go there... I know something yeah. a year later comes out. Right. I was like, uh, this is the ocean side. This is the hob, the granite, not the blue water. <laughs> so you not the Caribbean water, the gray water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, right. And that's finding the beauty in that. And then the Ethiopian side, the red clay, the honey, mm. the colors, and then just the New Yorker in me. And then I sent it to my dear friend, the artist, Derek Adams, and he's like, you're going to do this. It's going to be a restaurant. And that's when we started to... That's what I came out with. Did that become something? That became Havmar. That became a oh, restaurant. Oh, really? Wow. After 18 months, two years. Wow. You know. So truly birthed from a yeah. point of despair and, and rebirth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it was a healing process for me. Yeah. So also what I decided, from now on, I'm going to drive and lead with joy. Because... These two monumental moments of 9-11 and the pandemic, I was in New York and both, drove me to transformative moves in my life. Right. And I want to enjoy it. Right. Like I'm enjoying this fish. 
Yes. <laughs> From so Central good. Thailand <laughs> via Brooklyn uh, into New York. <laughs> Thank you. Into Soho. Mm-hmm. Onto our plate. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's so many layers of flavor, but also the it, I remember this last time that the spice is so well handled. Yeah, and it's nuanced, right? Yeah. It's like the heat takes you off, and then you have to stop, right? Yeah. And it can't stop, continue, because then you can't finish. But it's like it knows when to stop, like yeah. da. Yeah. And then the it's next step. Not gonna step. kill you. Um, you know, when you started in this career, you were really one of the few black chefs, certainly at your level. Now that there, there are more, and that's really exciting, are there people that, are there other brown and black chefs that you're excited about right now that are working? Absolutely. I mean, Ferry Elder is in our kitchen, Jaquita is in our kitchen, they're amazing. And so is Chef Aris, incredible. And then been in our t- teams and restaurants for a long time, but watching what Kwame is doing is amazing. Seeing what Eric William does in, in Chicago, what Mashama Bailey is doing in Savannah. And, you know, it's an incredible restaurant in Austin led by Tavel Bristol-Joseph and what Gregory is doing in Portland at Cannes. And I say this because what I just rolled out was that it's not a New York thing. Yeah. And that's the most important thing. So if you're a little kid coming up in the care restaurant and you have ambitions and you want to work in this space, whether you're of color or not, and you're on the West Coast, You're good in L.A. You're good in Portland. So this is happening across the country. Right. That is amazing because what it shows is that obviously being of color is not monolithic. And we are not one thing. We're super layered and complex. And out of that complexity comes our deliciousness. And I think if you look at American music, black music has done such a good job of actually explaining so if you and I would go and say, I love gospel, okay, you can go to a restaurant on Sunday and do that. Yeah. Or I love hip hop, okay, what era, right? Or if I love R&B, like there's, it's labeled, so the world knows these nuances, right? Mm. When it comes to black cooking, the reference points are, some of them are very strong, so we know what Southern or what we refer as soul food is. If you wanna go deeper, you, you really know food, you might know what low country is, right? And then, there's aspects of barbecue and there are aspects of Creole, but there's so much more to it, right? And eventually we're just gonna get to a space which is black modern. Mm. And you'll just trust that and then you, you know it's gonna be- What do you think that would look like? Well, I mean, I'll, I look mostly at music, right? When Beyonce did Renaissance, she drew from house music, right? Yeah. And that's modern, but there's hip hop in there. There are notes of R&Bs yeah. in yeah. there. Right, and that's why I do think that uh, you know what we do at Hob is. Oh God, that's such that. a great analogy, Marcus. You know? Like, yeah, I get so it. So yeah. there are nuances there, and that is what film has taught us. That is what music has taught us. Right. But in food, it's always been like just either muted or not layered enough, right? Mm. Explained well enough. Yeah. So I think this move, moment in food is is brilliant, and that's not just happening. We talk about restaurants now. Yeah. If you think about what's happening in the pop-up scene, yes, like Rashida, African American, yeah, that her. does a beautiful Japanese ramen pop-up, yeah. why not? Yeah, yeah. And then if you go to the street level, and then you can go with someone like Maya Camille in Chicago that does pies. So it's happening yeah. on every 
Level. Well, I mean, the greatest artists draw from what inspires them. And I think also the greatest artists know that no space has to be defined by what came before it. You know, and I think like you, you it's our opportunity to take a space and make it become whatever yeah. we want it to be. And I think, you know, the, the greatest actors do that. You know, they don't work in, within parameters. I think the greatest chefs do that. Mm -hmm. um, and so what you're speaking to absolutely supports that theory yeah. for me. But then also the power of this, right? The phone, like yeah. I had one of my big failures was one of them became one of the basic foundation of my biggest successes. Bef in between Aquavit and, and Red Rooster, I opened this gorgeous restaurant in the meatpacking called Mercado, which was modern African. And I loved it. I put everything I could into it. And there was an audience there, mm. but Maybe the rent was too high, or maybe the food. There was not an audience yet that understood that food, that yeah. experience. So we had to close. But I knew that even though it didn't work, we couldn't pay the rent. Everything was right, but the location. We shouldn't have put ourselves up where we had to pay $40,000 a month or whatever right, it was, right, right? right? But there was a movement there of excitement. Right. If that would have been the West Village or in Chelsea, mm -hmm. it would have been a great restaurant. But that was kind of like, okay, there's aspects of this that I'm gonna keep with me to Red Rooster. Okay, so that's, now that's really interesting to me because I just feel like for so many people, you know, the minute they, because uh, that was your first kind of big move is like Marcus Samuelson. Yeah. I, this, is, this, is my, this is my first part, here's what I'm gonna do. You stumbled, it didn't mm -hmm. work out. The amount of people that would say, oh, okay, that was scary, I don't wanna go through that again. Oh, no, it was scary. Sure, of course, but you didn't. You didn't finish. No, no. You didn't. You didn't lie down and be like, okay, I'm not. I'm going to stop. So many people would. I think what you know, that resilience and that that confidence, but also just that faith in yourself as as an artist, as a, as a chef, to continue on and be like, great, that didn't work. Let's try this thing. Is but I I couldn't inspiring. blame anyone. Like it was my fault. Sure, it was totally my fault. Yeah, I picked that location. Yeah. And maybe it was the vanity in me, wanted to be in the middle of meatpacking in that moment, right? Yeah. The f it was not the food, it was not the service, sure. it was not the cook, it was not definitely not the runner, and it was definitely not the guest. Right. So I'm like, okay. Well, even that, just knowing that you have only you to blame is, mm -hmm. is pretty advanced. Can yeah. I just say, can you please let me just compliment <laughs> you? <laughs> uh. So, I mean, what's, what's next for you? I know you opened up this place in Chelsea, which I really want to try. It's the Ethiopian and... It's delicious. Tell me the name of it again. Havmar. And it's on 11th and... 26th. 26th, okay. I'm, I'm desperate. I love Ethiopian. Just come. That's it. Of course I will. That's it. I don't need to be sold. <laughs> I love this. It was it's so great to talk to you. So good to see you again. Yes. I could spend I know. hours with you, especially if this is involved, all this insane mm. food. Yeah, thank you so much for doing thank this. Thank you really so much for having it. me. Thank you. You're the best. I was so excited to introduce Marcus to a restaurant that he had never tried before, but it was also so fun to share that experience with him. I mean, he was so joyous and present. He might have taken more photos of the food than I did, and it just reminded me to slow down and really appreciate all the work that has gone into making these meals. Uh, his life is such a mix of cultural experiences, and it is so evident in the way he honors those experiences through the food he creates and the work he does. And before we left the restaurant, it just goes to show how kind and generous and thoughtful Marcus is. He went to the kitchen and thanked everyone for making this beautiful meal for us. Uh, I just absolutely loved my time with him. 
Next time on Dinners on Me, it's Elizabeth Banks. We'll get into why the movie Seabiscuit was so meaningful to her, the Beanie Baby explosion of the 1990s, and how Bruce Willis had a hand at getting her her iconic Oliver Stone role. And if you don't want to wait until next week to listen, you can download that episode right now by subscribing to Dinners on Me Plus. As a subscriber, you not only get access to new episodes one week early, you'll also be able to listen to them completely ad-free. Just click Try Free at the top of the Dinners on Me show page on Apple Podcasts to start your free trial today. Dinners on Me is a production of Neon Hum Media, Sony Music Entertainment, and A Kid Named Beckett Productions. It's hosted by yours truly. It's executive produced by me and Jonathan Hirsch. Our showrunner is Joanna Clay. Chloe Chobel is our associate producer. Sam Baer engineered this episode. Hans Dale She composed our theme music. Our head of production is Sammy Allison. Special thanks to Alexis Martinez and Justin Makita. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson. Join me next week. 